Hello, and thanks for finding us. Karam Deo is a local church in Denver, Colorado. We're a network of friends following Jesus together. Join us for preaching, teaching, announcements, and other musings. Hey friends, welcome back. David here. This is lecture three, and we are exploring the life and work of the theologian Stanley Grenz. So a couple caveats to start. These lectures are being produced for a discussion-based course that we are running in our church and then being made available for anyone to listen to online. And I feel like I'm adding a caveat each week, but I also just felt to warn anyone listening that this is more of a, a Turkish coffee uh series of lectures, not so much a drip coffee. So what I mean by that is it's very unfiltered, very raw. Um, You are kind of getting access to my monologue of thoughts after a year of reading and kind of indwelling the writings and thought world of Stan Grenz. So buckle up, and I hope that it is fruitful not only for your mind, but your heart and soul as well. And if you are just joining in, then I really recommend you go back and start from the beginning with lecture one. All right, so a couple little recaps of where we are. We're really diving into some of the tensions we feel and our place in history. Uh, I think generally and then also acutely right now in 2020 because of some of the things happening in our world, um, we are stuck having a lot of questions like, how do we follow Jesus? How do the scriptures function with authority? How do we know what is true or what or who to trust? And, you know, there's a myriad of factors that have led to this culminating moment that we've discussed already. And we are going to dive back into engaging these questions through the lens of Stan Grenz. So the first two sessions were focused on introducing some terms, setting the stage, giving some context for these conversations. And inevitably, we're going to circle back to those words and those topics to try and expand on them, uh, build on them, layer on some complexity to them as we go. So, all right. Today's topic, we're focusing on basically Stan's vision for theology and not only the content of theology, but how, how do we even guide ourselves in thinking theologically, both in, in the sources that we draw from, you know, what we allow to influence us, and then also in kind of the dominant uh, key themes that should guide our thinking. And then we'll end with a little, some other reflections and a little activity. So I'm reading here, kind of paraphrasing some of my own words, um, summarizing Stan's kind of view of his theological project. So Stan, in many ways, sought to renew the warm-hearted pietism of his heritage This is marked by a generous orthodoxy, which for him he saw as the true evangelical spirit in the biblical theological definition of that word, not the cultural American historical expression of it. And he contrasted this kind of warm-hearted pietism and generous orthodoxy 
with the rational creedalism and the strict orthodoxy that had come to dominate uh, so much of the American church landscape in the 1990s. And we talked about this idea of pietism in previous lectures, but it it derives from some other historic movements uh, originating out of the German Lutheran church and then kind of spilling over across the channel um, in the English Pur- Puritan movement. And really these, these movements were marked by a, a priority and a renewal of the heart. Um, to state it maybe really succinctly, uh, where the Reformation had a focus on orthodoxy and right doctrine. Um, these movements of the Pietists and the Puritans had a emphasis on orthopathos, or a right love, and a correct ordering of love. And I think Stan would build on that kind of, that ethos of Puritanism, not only in the sense of a right love for God, but a right love for others, for people. And I think he was acutely aware and acutely concerned to keep that priority for right love ever present as he was practicing his theology, that he wouldn't get so lost in the kind of gravity of the academy and and academic studies by their nature that tend to emphasize and prioritize more cognitive, rational um, interactions. And he, he really saw this tension between the lived piety and, and this strict Bible-based kind of doctrinal approach to Christianity. And uh, Stan, Stan said this, uh, he wrote this in an article published in the 90s or early 2000s. The commitment to the gospel of heartfelt transformation and the accompanying suspicion of any reduction of saving faith to simple ascensus has been the lifeblood of evangelicalism throughout its history. It may well remain the movement's central contribution to the renewal of the Church of Jesus Christ. And he adds to this, the sine qua non of evangelicalism is not primarily doctrinal uniformity, but a vibrant spirituality. And his whole point there, drawing from even the bullet points that we talked about the other week from Bebbington, David Bebbington, the famous historian, um, is that evangelicalism, in the good sense of the word, the biblical, theological sense of the word, is primarily focused on the transformation of one's life through exposing someone to the message of the cross and, and the broader message of the kind of charisma, the proclamation of God's action and God's saving love uh, on planet Earth. Um, and for Grenz, this is to be the central kind of burning fire, burning ember at the core of what unifies all those who seek to follow Jesus and follow the scriptures truthfully. Um, as opposed to what he perceived as a kind of encrusted, rigid form of evangelicalism that was um, more in place in the 1990s that defined itself by its boundaries and by creedal agreement or people acknowledging certain doctrines and um, disregarding or, or rejecting certain other doctrines. And 
again, I think what's so important here at the, the core of his vision for theology is that our theological beliefs have to them tiers, or you could almost imagine it them as concentric circles. And he's, I think Stan is trying to permission us as followers of Jesus to place certain beliefs at different levels within those concentric circles, that not all beliefs have to hang together as equally important. Um, and that results in this this generous orthodoxy and this, this posture of love that we can maintain even amongst um, both within the broader body of Christ, within our differences of, of denominations and, and doctrinal beliefs on certain matters, and then also even towards others who don't share uh, the Christian faith and do not, you know, pretend to or uh, ascribe or, or ascend to follow an apprentice under Jesus. So I think that get, captures kind of the heart of his vision for evangelicalism. And again, what he thought he was trying to do through his own academic work and his publications Um in many ways, he's he's encouraging and, and striving to see a renewal of what he sees as the original goodness of the evangelical spirit, as this vibrant spirituality that calls people back to Jesus. Um, and today, we're going to get into kind of how he conceived of two things: one, his sources. For and not only his sources, but we what he sees as all Christians' sources for belief, and then also what he observes to be kind of the guiding motifs or themes that should help structure our thinking as we approach and engage the scriptures, um, and as we approach and engage uh, the Christian community. So, sources and motifs—that's the topic for today. And by theological sources. The traditional concept here is what do you prescribe uh, that, that you will allow to influence and shape your beliefs? Um, so this is anecdotal, but I think in my experience, many church attending Christians, if you ask them, hey, where do your beliefs come from? How do you know anything about God. I think many people, although they may not do this in their actions, which we talked about in lecture one, they would confess with their mouth that they read the Bible and derive their beliefs about God. And I call this the prescriptive model because it's a little idealistic. And um, while that may be the simplest model, and, and again, it, it's a very appealing because it provides everyone a common source. And this is in many ways, you know, the heritage of the Protestant Reformation was this conviction of Luther that the Bible needs to be in the hands of believers um, and that, that all should have the ability to, to discover who God is and discover the story of God um, through the scriptures on their own and that they should not need a a professional or a priest or an intermediary source to mediate between them and God. So the traditional, I think, American evangelical and even dropping that label kind of 
lay level Christian concept of beliefs is that I read the Bible and I, it's my source book for forming my beliefs. And, uh, I think what Grenz is doing here, just a, as a caveat, he's going to list a few sources for theology. And it was, it was my perception as I read him that he was attempting not to be prescriptive, but descriptive. So his, his goal was honesty, um, and describing the process of how beliefs form as opposed to being idealistic. And so with that caveat, we'll kind of go through them here one at a time. In, in multiple places in his publications, Grenz outlines his vision that uh, the sources of beliefs, the sources of our theological thinking about God, ourselves, and the world comes through three avenues, scripture, church heritage, and culture. And Grenz writes this, uh, though they may be treated conceptually in isolation from each other, in practice they are nearly inseparable. And what he means by that statement is these three sources for him are distinguished temporally and historically. Um, so if, if we pause for a second and just think about this, the scriptures are is a library of canonized books that the church um, prayerfully designated as um, inspired by God and worthy for, you know, communicating and mediating this message of salvation through Jesus Christ. And in many ways, if we, in our modern day, it's very easy to separate these three. So we have our present culture that we live in, church heritage, that's stuff that happened in the past. And then scripture, that is this ancient text that has been handed down to us um, and canonized as the authoritative inspired word of God. So from our standpoint and perspective in the modern day, these three categories feel very distinguishable. But if we rewind the tape and go back in time to say the first century, second century, third century, um, we realize quite quickly that all three of these categories collapse into each other. And what I mean by that is um, the authors of the 66 books of the Bible, uh, Old Testament Jewish scriptures and New Testament scriptures, are a part of the heritage of the church. And in many ways, the church is a derivative and um, an offshoot kind of movement and sect within Judaism. And, and every one of those authors who wrote and was inspired to write these texts lived themselves within a certain cultural context. And so Grenz's whole point here is that we need to kind of reconceive of how we think of the scriptures um, the Christian scriptures are functionally very different than other religious texts. Uh, for example, uh, I will not pretend to be an expert on this, but spent some time in Turkey and had a handful of friends who are Muslim, and the Quran is understood to be the very word of God. And it was disseminated through a spiritual encounter and then written verbatim and inscribed in Arabic. 
And the Quran, in some sense, from this is anecdotal, but this is my conversations I've had with some of my friends, the Quran ceases to be the Quran if it's translated into another language. So in, in that sense, again, my, my perception was always that um, for a committed, faithful Muslim, the Quran in that sense is cultureless. It is, it is a direct dissemination from the voice of God. Whereas throughout church history, Christians have never claimed any such thing. Um, there may be certain passages or certain little parts of scripture that claim to be um, uh, an exact verbatim wordage from a theophany or an angelic encounter or from the voice of God himself, say for Moses, for example, in the book of Exodus. Um, so there may be little moments of that, but ultimately scripture is understood to be the inspired word of God mediated through someone's humanity, which includes their culture and their time and place in history. And it's been understood that that does not detract from um, the power of God, but it actually speaks to this fundamental truth about who God is as being one who will come and accommodate and incarnate with humanity and meet us in our culture, right? And so for Grenz, again, these three categories, which I'll unpack a little bit more in depth, um, are completely inseparable because just as the ancient authors had history and a culture, so too we as the modern day readers have our own histories and our own cultures that have shaped us. And it's the connecting and communication between these two um, that is so desperately in need of God to help both inspire to the original authors and then illuminate to the modern day reader. So let's unpack that a little bit. That was a lot. Um, first source that he names as scripture. So Grenz is adamant that scripture forms the basic primary norm for Christian theology. In a sense, it provides the, the basic grammar and logic and uh, witness to what Christianity is and how it evolved out of Judaism and um, the Old Testament and how in many senses it was a messianic Jewish movement that um, that derived in the first century. And in a sense here, Grenz's use of scripture and how he approaches it is from a narrative perspective. And what that means is he gives priority to the reality of God's being and the reality of God's activities in the world, both in the past and the present. And then the scripture is conceived of as really a work of the Holy Spirit. It's a witness to the reality of those historical events and the reality of God's inbreaking in time and space. And this is in some ways an intentional critique and challenge to the way that some conservative Christian communities tend to elevate the scripture or the Bible almost to an equal status or a primary status above the reality of God and the reality of God's presence, past and present. Um, so let me read some of the, this is my own words, summarizing Grenz's kind of uh, understanding here of narrative theology. 
These narratives have been preserved by and are lived out by the church. He argues, Grenz argues, that the contemporary social sciences confirm this fundamentally biblical idea that knowledge of anything, especially one's personal identity, is impossible without belief structures provided by a community. So what he's saying there is um, these, these scriptures attest to the activity of God, but the scriptures, the, the words written in a book themselves, do not contain alone the memory, but it is, it is the living community itself that we participate in that also stewards and carries that memory. And you could come up with a couple quick examples of this, of even um, practices that Jesus commands to his followers, like the Lord's Supper or baptism, right? These are, these are things that can be written down in a book, but ultimately they're experiences that are embodied and require the presence of a, a physical community in whatever time and space um, a person might be. So, Grenz continues here, the cultural and social conditioning of theology is not a downfall. Rather, it justifies the role of the individual local church communities within the broader church universally. Grenz is critical of the academic tendency to view theology as merely an organization of the facts of Scripture, producing timeless statements of truth, because this is not how theology actually develops nor functions in real life. And so again, Grenz is kind of coming up against here the view of Scripture that it's almost like a repository or uh, a phone book of sorts that you can just use to go look up some fact and extract some quote or something from the broader story and witness. And again, he's trying to emphasize that there is this beautiful reality that the text is itself a tool of the Spirit. It's a witness to this reality, uh, a reality that is in the past, but a reality that is also actively with us in the present and will one day be fulfilled in the future. Um, and and again, I think kind of that thought experiment I had you do of rewinding the tape back to the early church and to help us realize here that without the church, the work of the Spirit, um, there is no Bible. There is, there is no Paul uh, traveling around ancient Europe uh, planting churches. There is no um, council of faithful elders trying to steward the message and, and the proclamation of Christ that had been passed down when the scriptures are canonized in the 4th century. So that naturally, logically, his, all Grenz's emphasis on the priority of scripture leads us to his second source, which he labels church heritage. And if you identify within the Protestant stream of the body of Christ, then you're probably, uh, historically, you have been, and very likely you are suspicious of dry and crusty traditions. Um, and in our modern age, <laughs> since, since really the 17th century, I feel like the Western worldview has been on a... a a systematic mission to deconstruct every and any tradition that was passed down um, and to critique it and kind of tear it apart. And, um, and Grenz's, Grenz points out that the irony here for Protestants is that when we completely disregard history or disregard tradition and those who have gone before us, um, we actually isolate ourselves 
to the present cultural moment and almost make ourselves more vulnerable to to imposing all kinds of weird biases and preferences and personal desires onto this this book onto the holy scriptures and so in many ways um the church has been formational in validating affirming canonizing the scriptures as i just said in the fourth century a.d or ce um, and so we cannot divorce the scripture from the living believing community that both it emerged and generated out of with the early church and the early apostles and the the early writers who now have given us the new testament um, so we cannot divorce it from these early church days and and then again i think it's almost probably an uncomfortable reality to sit in but for the first three centuries of Christianity, there was not a canonized New Testament. So it begs the question, what was forming the early church's beliefs in those first three centuries? And yes, they had a, a more or less canonized um, Old Testament that had been adopted from, um, from Judaism. And they had a kind of fuzzy, fluctuating list of key writings that circulated amongst the those church in those first centuries. Um, but just to sit in that for a second and realize that the church was functioning, thriving, growing. People were encountering this message of this good news of the gospel, and they had no canonized New Testament. I mean, that throws a wrench in some of our simplistic models of um, how, how we derive our beliefs about God and how we follow Jesus, right? And so, Grenz's whole point here is that your best chance of reading scripture rightly uh, will be if you take into account those who have gone before you and you are, have some level of awareness and fluency with, uh, with church history. And, and I would add even your own personal church history, the, the heritage that you were maybe born into or started following Jesus into, if that was a specific denomination or group or historic movement within the body of Christ. And um, this then heritage leads to his third source, logically, because we in the modern day are a part of the history of the church. We are just the newest iteration of it. And with each passing generation, that historical legacy is built on and continued. And so the present culture, as we move through time, becomes the past tradition. And so we have to recognize that just as we read people from the past and we see the way their cultural, um, the cultural texture of their time shaped their thought, we have to acknowledge that our cultural texture and cultural forces are shaping us and shaping our thought. And, and this was in many ways Grenz's most controversial and criticized um, kind of point, his, his, his inclusion of culture as a source of theology. And again, I think some people would hear that at, at a surface value and just assume, oh, he's, he's changing the, the meaning of the Bible by adapting to culture. And, and ironically, again, his point was the complete opposite. His point was whether you acknowledge it or not, your cultural context and your cultural location, your socio kind of, your social location, um, is forming and shaping and influencing what you impose upon a text, especially a, 
a text like the Bible. And so his, his challenge was for Christians and American evangelicals specifically to acknowledge the degree to which their present culture was creating their social linguistic value system and the stories they believed in um, and really created their, their mental map of how they understood reality. And if we are unaware of this, we are at a much greater risk to impose our own subjective cultural opinions on a text and thus interpret it wrongly. So Grenz's point was not that we should prescriptively um, you know, draw from culture to change the scripture, but that if we lack awareness that this is a source, we will unwittingly do all kinds of um, silly things. And just to pause, I think in many ways, this, this idea of a cultureless Christianity is not only dangerous, but unbiblical, right? As we just kind of, as I just expounded upon looking at the scriptures, um, 66 books written by over 50 authors over, over a thousand years of diversity. I mean, there are, there's a vast array of genres and, and literary styles and personality types and cultural contexts in which those texts were written. And, and one of the dominant movements and themes and messaging from those scriptures that we receive as humans is that God is able and willing and wanting to come and meet us in our culture. And so to pretend that we don't have one in some ways is unbiblical in the sense of denying the the beauty of God and his 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 audacious love and and ability to come and meet us in our in our culture and in our brokenness right and then worse i think if we don't understand that our christianity has a culture to it we run the risk of, especially in positions of power or leadership, we run the risk of really doing damage to other people. Um, and it makes it, I've watched it over and over again, it makes Christians incapable of having conversations in this pluralistic world, whether that's conversations of, around diversity in the theological sense of different viewpoints, or whether that's... Um, more cultural things going on, like the the very important topic of racial justice going on in the American context right now. And, and I consistently see Christians who have been formed in a church community that allowed them to think they were just cultureless Christians. They don't have the mental categories or framework to to engage in conversations around diversity, and it makes it even harder, especially within the white evangelical church, um, for those persons to realize that they have a culture, and um, and it's it, it becomes difficult to uh, really have humility and listen to others when you don't recognize that. So. Um, by acknowledging the degree to which culture is and how it already has shaped us, we actually open ourselves up to the greatest potential and the greatest hope of, of accurately mapping this world and its complexity. And, and, and yeah, so I think um, 
in contrast to Grenz's kind of three-part movement of scripture, tradition or heritage, and culture shaping our religious beliefs, our Christian beliefs and understanding of God and self, um, in contrast to that, I think many, many Christians assume they, they have a value for culture, um, but they conceive of culture coming into the conversation much further downstream. So there's a brilliant writer and author named Millard Erickson who was in many ways, a, he was a contemporary with Grenz, but he was in, in many ways kind of um, from the generation before Grenz. And they interacted a lot academically. And um, definitely, I mean, just to say respect Erickson and um, just as a man and uh, his thoughts, but even in his explanation in some of his texts of his methodology, um, you know, there might be this complex process of his method of how to form theological beliefs. And it starts with scripture, number one, and then down at the bottom, number 10 is um, to correlate the timeless scriptural truths to the culture. And again, as a prescriptive method, I think that's the goal. That's the ideal um, that we would all think we're doing. But I think this approach neglects to see the way that your cultural context has already shaped you from step one, um, meaning there is no reading of scripture that is in a vacuum or void of the reader's cultural presuppositions. And we don't really have time or space here for this, but but just to make the note, I don't, I don't think, and Grenz would argue this too, those presuppositions are not entirely bad. Um, sometimes they can lead be bad, but those presuppositions of our culture and how it's shaped us, part of it is just our humanity. And in some ways, that those presuppositions are what allow us to read an ancient text written 2,000 years ago and actually have it speak to us and, ha- and, and understand what, what Paul is going through when, you know, when he's writing to the church in Corinth and he says, um, he's explaining this story about how he prayed for these, these difficulties to be taken away from him, these, these things opposing him. And we're not super clear what it is. And, and he says that God speaks to his heart and says, my, my grace is sufficient for you. Uh, my power is made perfect in your weakness, right? And there's something deeply profound and about our shared humanity across culture, across time and space that allows us to read words from Paul and feel like they're being spoken to us. Um, so again, I think it's important in this conversation to acknowledge that actually some of our bias is actually a shared human thing and it's what it's what allows us to actually relate to and understand these texts. And then there are other components from our culture that are very foreign to the text. And our culture is very different than first century Europe and um, first century Middle East. So, so again, an awareness of that is going to help us um, interpret Scripture more rightly, not the other way around. Um, and I think... Another kind of side caveat here related to this that has really become evident to me in the last year is um, I think this this 
idea that our culture forms and shapes us allows us to see how not only Christians, but all people are being formed by trusting in some source or some story and grand narrative of, of our world and what it means to be human. So, in a sense, acknowledging the way culture shapes us allows us to be, become cognizant of the ways that it is shaping us so that we can then actually choose afresh to accept or reject that shape that shaping and that formation. So it exposes not only that we as Christians believe in these stories about God's covenants to these ancient people, but that all humans believe in stories. And so the question is not if you believe, um, but what story you're going to believe in and trust in. And and I think uh, there's a pretty well-known podcast that's circulated recently called This Cultural Moment, um, produced and hosted by John Mark Comer and an Australian pastor named Mark Sayers. And um, some of us in our church movement were on a call the other day and uh, Mark gave, kind of delivered a a word and encouragement. And he was talking about the, how, how our complicated world of the 20th century has, has gone into a state of utter complexity and, and I think in many ways, this reminded me of what Grenz was trying to say. And for, for someone who is a follower of Jesus, it's not hard to acknowledge that in our daily choices and actions and behaviors, um, we screw up and we sin. We, we hurt others. We hurt ourselves. We do destructive things. We have destructive habits. It's not hard to see kind of that individual component of our sin through our behaviors. Um, and so I think all Grenz is doing here in his sources is he's applying that idea that we're kind of stuck and lost in our sin. He's applying it not only to our behaviors, um, but to our ability to know anything at all. And, and in this uh, video call that I was on, Mark Sayers was kind of making the same point that that our world is so complex and so overwhelmingly so that the only hope we have as followers of Jesus is the inbreaking activity provided by the guidance of the Holy Spirit. It's the, it's the active leading presence of God that is our greatest hope and that we rely on and trust. And, and in many ways, um, again, for Grenz, outlining these three sources um, only magnifies the majesty and beauty and the, the true biblical sense of what it means to trust in God. And there's something very subtle and profound here that he's doing in the way we approach the scriptures. And, and again, it's, it's, the scriptures are not functioning as just a source text for Grenz, but they are... They're an invitation into, into participation in a reality that was and still is present. And um, I've been reading through a really great book by kind of a world-famous biblical scholar. His name's Craig Keener. Um, and Keener is a fascinating guy, teaches at a Wesleyan 
or I forget, but he's had influences from the Wesleyan church um, through some of his education and he teaches in all types of circles within the body of Christ. And then he's a Pentecostal, which is a, for some, for some might think that's an oxymoron to be a Pentecostal and have a PhD, but increasingly and thankfully it's not. And Keener writes this in his book, uh, Spirit Hermeneutics, Reading Scripture in Light of Pentecost. This is early on in the introduction. He says, Throughout Scripture, we read about people hearing from God, prophesying, and experiencing miracles. Though we may not all experience these activities daily, biblical patterns lead us to expect that the God who empowered these activities throughout Scripture is the God who still empowers them today. Many traditional approaches fail to do justice to Scripture's own witness. For example, they read Scripture as if it were merely designed to satisfy our historical interest about past salvation history. This is the approach of some conservative interpreters, or the type of people that Grenz was kind of um, challenging during his career. Or, we read the Scripture as if it were merely designed to satisfy our historical interest about past ideas, the approach of many liberals, <laughs> or just teach us doctrine about God without inviting a relationship with him that exemplify or exemplifying moral virtues without attesting the spirit's power to implement them. So again, you know, from multiple different angles, Keener here is echoing the same arguments and frustrations that Grenz had with modern-day American Christianity, that it was so quick to kind of isolate the scriptures as this timeless, this time capsule that we go back to to mine for statements or beliefs of truth, um, that we almost miss the forest in the trees and fail to see the, the reality that this book is attesting to, which is the activity and working of God on the earth in the past and the present. So that is Stan's vision for how our, the sources of theology are forming and shaping us. And I think it's, it gives a sobering um, paradigm that actually will help us be more faithful to the message of Scripture, not less. Now having outlined those sources, um, we need to dive into something a little, this will be a little briefer, but I just want to discuss some of the guiding motifs and themes. And what I mean by this, and for some of you who haven't had any formal education in theological studies, this might seem strange, but um, the simple reality is, if we look at the scriptures as a whole, let alone if we follow Stan's lead and look at all of church history and all of contemporary culture, that is a lot of data. That is a lot of information coming into our brains. And so, um, pragmatically, uh, and also I think biblically, we need, we need something to help guide and, and, and kind of structure the way we think about our, our views of God, our views of the world, our views of ourselves. And so theologians typically will cling to kind of a dominant motif or a dominant theme. Um, maybe, maybe someone fixates on the glory of God 
And, and usually, again, the theologian doesn't just pull these out of a hat. Um, he or she is trying their best to discern these themes from the scriptures, from the story of God. And so, in, for example, like I just said, in the Reformed tradition of Protestantism, the dominant theme you see again and again is the glory of God. So all doctrines, all beliefs about God, the world, or humanity has to almost align with this larger movement of the glory of God. And if we, if you survey a bunch of kind of famous thinkers throughout church history, you'll often find that they had kind of a, a driving concept like this that helped orient their thinking and organize their thinking. Um, and Grenz, again, is going to allow his three sources to inform the motifs that he suggests are most helpful for us as Christians. So he offers three motifs that should kind of guide Christian theology in three different ways. And I'll, I'll list them out here and then dive into each of them briefly. So he argues that Christian theology should be deeply Trinitarian in its organization, community-focused in its synthesis and praxis. So it's, it's summarizing and kind of connecting and also in its, its functioning and its purpose. And then third eschatological or future focused in its message. So the three motifs that Grenz discerns by drawing from his sources are the Trinity, community, and eschatology. So let's drill into those really briefly. So by Trinity here, Grenz is appealing to the story of God revealing to us who God is. Right? So rather than us coming to the scriptures and imposing upon it a preconceived philosophical idea of God as the ultimate being or the omniscient being or um, monotheistic, polytheistic, whatever, you know, a religious world, you might say, we come to the scriptures and we allow the scriptures to reveal to us through God's activity in the world who he is. And the scriptures attest, and then church history confirms um, that God is fought, revealed as Father, Son, and Spirit. He is a social trinity. He is God's very being is inherently ontologically communal. Um, which, when we think about you know some of these New Testament statements like "God is love," um, this starts to actually make more sense. How how could a being encompass love unless it was inherently communal? And there's this, I mean, we could just kind of get drunk and, and swirl out on the, the overwhelming mystery of the Trinity, right? And for many, I think the Trinity is conceived of as this kind of um, static, dry, confusing church doctrine that, that came out of church history. But again, Grenz is going to emphasize Yes, the, the word itself, Trinity, is, is a later development after the canonization of Scripture through some of these councils and, and um, confessions by the early church leaders. But it is their attempt to summarize and discern the reality of God's activity that the Scriptures witness to and attest to. So again, I think the profound movement here, it's almost a principle for theology, is allowing God's reality to define, um, define the terms rather than imposing terms upon God that he must fit into. 
And um, in a philosophical sense, Grenz kind of emphasizes here that uh, the ground of reality is, in an ontological, metaphysical sense, is the social, communal being of God. Uh, eternity past, eternity future. Um, God's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And then in an epistemological sense of how humanity knows that, um, this revelation about the core of reality has come through the witness of God's working with humanity that's attested to in Scripture and also attested to, I would hope, by many of us in the modern day who have had experiences um, and encounters with this God through the Holy Spirit. Um, so the Trinity, his theology is oriented and shaped fundamentally by the Trinity. Second is community. And again, he's, <laughs> he's deriving this theme from Trinity and the idea that God in his being is fundamentally a communal being. Um, and then picking up on a, a biblical concept we'll talk a lot about in the coming weeks called the image of God or the Imago Dei. And from Genesis 1, this will then be kind of picked up again by Pauline theology in the New Testament as Paul's trying to make sense of the Old Testament in light of Christ and Christ fulfilling these promises of a coming Messiah. And Paul is going to see, in many ways, Christ embodying um, our original vocation. He's the second Adam for Paul. And Christ is the true image of God. And we, the church, are his body. And so, both in the original Hebrew, from creation of men and women together, reflecting the image of God in a, in a social sense. And then now in the New Testament, as Christ, as the head, but also then the church being his social body that now fundamentally reflects who God is to the world. And, and God, throughout the whole story in between there, with working with Abraham, with Israel, the formation and birth of Israel, and then up into this church age, God is always, you know, his activity on the earth is always producing community. Um, and particularly, as we get to the climax of this movement in the God story, it's a community marked by love. Marked by love for one another, hopefully, and even love for enemies. So the essence of Christianity for Grenz is embodied by this communal love. And... And it takes its, you know, its its purpose, its meaning, its authority. It's derived from the very being of God, and um, and then it's expressed on the earth through Christ's body, His church. And I think further, so Gren sees this emphasis on community through Scripture. He sees it producing communities through the church age, which is very obvious and explicit, the whole concept of church planning and missions and spreading the message of the gospel. And when the message sticks somewhere, it creates a community, um, a community of love, hopefully. And further, in this modern, postmodern age in the 21st century, Gren sees an opportunity here where even the modern cultural context is longing and valuing community. Um, so he thinks it's so it's an insightful, opportune moment to to correlate these deeply biblical themes um, 
to our present reality. Even the social sciences and philosophies are emphasizing the social nature of humanity and, and knowledge and, um, and really all reality. And so um, Grenz uses this as an entry point to, to show that actually Christian theology and, and the gospel of Jesus has something to say to this cultural moment. And then lastly, eschatology. And just to be very clear here, Grenz is not emphasizing um, what some may have experienced with eschatology as kind of this end times doom and gloom or this almost newspaper reading, deciphering of political events and trying to predict the end. What Grenz is talking about by emphasizing eschatology and by theology fundamentally being eschatological. He's emphasizing the the intention, the telos, and the the intention God has, His goal for humanity and the creation. Um, so it is. It's that. It's not as just crass and simple as um, trying to predict when the end is going to come. It's it's Him saying that God is fundamentally future oriented. The, the church is the theological, hope-filled community that is actively trying to construct and change the world as God wills it. So we're trying to, you know, it's, it's in Jesus' prayer of on, on earth as it is in heaven. The church's role is to focus on a future reality that is not yet here and pull it into the present through their words, through their actions, through their choices um, through their lives. And, and this is also kind of an appeal to kind of the radical departure that the, that the Judeo-Christian worldview brings into history of viewing linear, uh, history in a linear fashion rather than a cyclical fashion. So the world is actually going somewhere. There's actually a, a progress and a purpose to creation and the development of humanity. And and in many ways, the modern era picked up on this and um, this this optimism and this future-oriented progress. And now we use it as a descriptor for people who are always focused on adaptation and change. We call them progressives. And sometimes that has positive connotations. Sometimes it might have negative connotations. But but this is in this is infused in the Western worldview from the foundation of its Judeo-Christian roots. This concept of the world being structured linearly, time functioning linearly, and the world going somewhere to some greater purpose. Um, and so in the next lecture, we will talk a bit more about how Grenz used these three sources and then these three motifs to culminate in this kind of driving idea that he saw as this, he, he talks about it being like this key that unlocks um, our insight to who God is and who we are. And it's the doctrine of the Imago Dei or the image of God. And this is for him again, where, where our theology and our anthropology become one. And it's where the whole problem we've been discussing and from the beginning of this course of how do we know anything? How do we know what's true? How do we know how to live? How do we know who to trust? How do we know who we are? Um, How do we know who God is? How do we trust the scriptures are authoritative, right? For Grenz, all of these questions kind of cross and collapse into this idea of the image of God, and um, which is then fulfilled and embodied through Christ 
and is almost given to us as our prophesied destiny that we will one day um, live into and, and realize. So we'll circle back to that much later. Um, just kind of in closing here, I think this is the vision Grenz is casting, right? That theology would be, that theology is sourced through a primary commitment to the story of God in Scripture, the witness of Scripture, the authority and inspiration of Scripture, then shaped and informed. And our interpretation of that Scripture is preserved through learning and being aware and studying our heritage as Christians and learning about church history um, and the ways God was continuing to move throughout church history with broken people. And that, lastly, we would be culturally aware of the way that we have been formed or deformed by our cultural contexts and the ways that we have been helped and hindered in our understanding of the truth God's trying to communicate to us through our cultural context. And um, and this then leads to a theology that is robustly Trinitarian, communitarian, and eschatological. Um, and his, his driving critiques that are kind of behind the scenes, well, sometimes out in front, but often implied and behind the scenes, his, his driving critiques of the state of American, I'll say in parentheses, evangelical Christianity, was their adoption and affinity with modernity and even other American cultural values like individualism and consumerism and things like this. And he was, his whole motive in what he was producing and writing was um, to try and clear the way for Christianity in America to experience a renewal movement. And we'll dive into a little more depth uh, the next couple sessions here, these two layers to this critique. So first, he was critiquing evangelicalisms and American Christianity in general, their adoption of a foundationalist epistemology that assumed human knowledge is linear, objective, and rational, which, in his judgment, tended to create a type of Christianity and a type of discipleship and the types of churches that are highly structured and defined by what you believe and confess with your mouth and to the detriment of a vibrant, healthy, thriving spirituality that actually transforms lives by the power of God. And then second... He is critical of American evangelicalism's implicit assertion that knowledge is acquired individualistically, apart from traditions, apart from a community, and apart from one's culture. And I think he, he saw this really hindering um, discipleship and even and affecting and tainting all kinds of other theological assertions like... Um, just to give one side caveat example, uh, I think within American evangelicalism, for example, doctrines about sin and atonement tend to be highly, highly individualistic. Um, and again, not that that is not a valid component of sin, that ultimately each man and woman, each person will, um, you know, stand before God for their choices, their actions, their behaviors. That is a biblical concept. Um, but Grenz would critique and say it is actually a cultural bias that Americans have adopted 
that makes it difficult for them to see the social component and social functioning of sin um, and, and leads to this emphasis on the individual. And so Grenz wants to, again, his whole motive here is to purge and, and renew Christianity by removing some of the cultural baggage that has been adopted into it in the last hundred years. Um, and, and he's not naive. He knows that us in the present moment, we will have future baggage that we need to remove and clear and that this is an ongoing process that every generation is continually living into this, this cleansing and renewal process so that God can come and meet them um, and bring transformation. So, yes, that is his critique. And that leaves us kind of with, you know, these lingering questions that are going to dive in. We're going to dive into the topic of epistemology. So what is truth? How do humans know anything what did Grenz have to say about these questions? What was the American evangelical answer to these questions? And how can we draw from scripture, tradition, and culture to, to gain insight and chart a path forward? Um, so that'll be our movement the next couple sessions. And just in closing, um, I felt in prayer this morning and it, it seemed to kind of align with, with Grenz's work and even the topics we were talking about today. Um, so this is not necessarily Grenz, but I think it aligns with everything we were just exploring. Um, but it's this idea that theology is fundamentally not a rational or cognitive discipline. Uh, traditionally, most of us have probably thought of it that way. We associate theology with books we will never read and academic people who we can't understand, and crusty old white guys sitting in offices surrounded by books. But in reality, theology is fundamentally existential. And what I mean by that word is theology demands for something from you. It's not just philosophical frameworks and philosophical um, musing but almost more in the spirit of, I think, of a philosopher like Soren Kierkegaard or a theologian in, in the 20th century named Diedrich Bonhoeffer or a pastor who led a Reformation movement in America named Martin Luther King Jr., right? These were people who understood that theology fundamentally had implications for, upon your existence, so these, these questions about God, these questions about self, um, you can answer them or not, but either way, you have to choose how you will live. And, and I think in a metaphysical, ontological sense, right, what is most eternal and most real um, is the subject and the goal of theology and reflection, and it's, it's, in many ways, the audacious claim that Christianity makes and that the scriptures, the Jewish and Christian scriptures, presume. They presume that there is a reality, a creation that exists apart from our human observation of it. And this reality is not neutral, it's not passive, it's not inert, but at the core of it is this divine being that is, that is a social 
being a Trinitarian God of love. And the scriptures, I think, theologically reveal to us what I would call a two-part movement. Um, There's these two kind of driving poles that help orient us, I think, in the God story. And that is the fear of the Lord and the unconditional and unfailing love of God. And I think even as we're talking about all this mumbo jumbo and philosophy, I think it's important um, to draw from that and bring it back to our real lives and acknowledge, I think, this, this theme we see happen and unfold in scripture of the fear of the Lord. It is what's going on there is this is metaphysics. This is ontology in the raw sense. It is, it is a human being being confronted with the reality of an all-powerful divine being. Um, I often will teach on this and tell, tell a story like the fear of the Lord is not something that needs to be coerced or taught to you. The fear of the Lord is a reality that is recognized. So imagine, uh, for example, if you were wandering through a forest, uh, probably not, probably not in America, but somewhere else, you're wandering through a forest and you hear some rustling behind a bush and out steps uh, a lion, right? No one in that moment needs to hit pause and tell you to be afraid. Every nerve ending, every perception in your body, in your senses, whether you have ever, you've maybe never, imagine the person who first came across a lion. They didn't even have a name for it. They didn't know it was a lion. They didn't know what to call it. But when they saw that being, no one needs to tell them to be afraid. No one needs to tell them that this being is more powerful and more um, real and and strong and uh, impressive than they are, right? So the fear of the Lord in many senses, in the biblical senses, it's a human coming to terms with the founding truth of reality, Um that is the existence of God. It's the fear of the Lord is like the basis of existentialism. It's the foundational movement here. It's, um, yeah. And, and we see these moments throughout scripture where people encounter God or even encounter an ambassador of God through a theophany or an angel and they fall on their faces there. They, um, they cannot stand. And then, the story when we actually fill in the content of those moments or in those encounter moments when the being or uh, the theophany or when God speaks, we have revelation, we have epistemology, and we start to learn not only about the nature of God, but the character of God. What is this being that, that brings about such fear? What is this being actually like? And And the narrative of Scripture is... 1% exposure to the fear of the Lord and the reality of God in the metaphysical sense. And it's 99% the narrative of the unconditional, unfailing, unending love of God being, being poured out and, and communicated to a broken world. And when we get confronted with the reality of these two truths, this is what the scriptures, again, this is what Grenz and the narrative theologians, this is what Grenz is trying to call us to, that 
It's the reality of God's working with us in the world that the scriptures are witnesses to through the power of the Spirit. And it's the reality of the fear of the Lord and God's unfailing love for us that, that this story is trying to catch us up into and this community called the church is trying to invite us into. And so right now, whether you're driving your car, sitting on your couch, walking through a neighborhood, laying on your bed, I just want to invite you to shut off your brain and suspend yourself between those two truths. And almost to, again, not only we just spent an hour, you just spent an hour listening to me talk about theology, and I want you to to embrace the fact that um, if you believe in God, theology is an active presence that is encompassing, surrounding, and in which your life suspends itself between. And the only thing is whether or not we are aware of it or whether or not our world becomes too narrow, too small, too self-focused, too focused on the present, that we lose touch with this past, future, all-encompassing truth of the fear of the Lord and the unfailing love of God. And so I invite you just to spend, we'll do a minute in silence here, and I just invite you to almost surrender to that presence of God, or the reality of God. Father, yeah, we just suspend ourselves. We place ourselves rightly again before your reality. And we entrust ourselves to you. We thank you for demonstrating your sufficiency and your, your fervent commitment and love to come and engage us as humans stuck in our ways, our behaviors, stuck in our, our complexities and our, our broken thoughts. Um, we thank you for not leaving us without a witness, for not leaving us without hope. Um, and we thank you for the presence of your Holy Spirit that is now made available to all humans, all those who are willing to pause, to turn off the noise, and to open their hearts and minds, to open their imaginations to you. And so we just pray as we continue to dive deeper into rabbit holes of questions about philosophy and culture, um, we just 
fixate on the reality that's always present and ongoing, even as we talk and discuss these things, that your presence, that your reality is not changed or affected by our opinions of it. And we thank you for the peace and assurance that that actually brings. And so I just pray that as we engage rationally, that you would also be building and and building up our foundation of trust, our faith, our, our commitment, our surrender to you, Jesus. We just say, you are king. We love you. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you want to connect further, please visit us at www.cdchurch.org.